Inner chaos is part of so many lives. When we go through it, we often try to hide it on the outside. Now I'm okay. I'm all good. But inside, there's a struggle. Why do I feel this way? Am I broken? Am I the only one feeling like this? When people connected with Jesus, they would grow to trust Him, pull down the mask they wore. starting a new series called It's Okay Not To Be Okay. And of course, that's the starting place that Jesus always meets us, isn't it? Where we're at. Uh, faith says that Jesus will come and meet us where we're at. Religion says that we've got to attain some sort of mountaintop experience of, of some of our own righteousness to actually be available or acceptable to God. And what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to begin a series looking at how it is that uh, Jesus interacted with people and uh, he, he, he looked at them in the eye and he said, it's okay not to be okay. That's your starting place. You don't have to come to me and tell me you know, that you've got it all sorted before I'm acceptable to you or you're acceptable to me. Uh, many years ago, 30 odd years ago, Makata and I lived in the UK and um, we befriended uh, a guy called Bruce. He was from Auckland and uh, you know, classic Kiwi name, Bruce. He didn't have a son, uh, well, sorry, a brother called Trevor, but Bruce was a good guy. And uh, Bruce had this uh, little story he told about when he was a kid being raised in South Auckland. He had a job delivering pamphlets. How many of you have ever had a job delivering pamphlets? Yeah, it's one of those fun jobs because you do your exercise and you get paid the monstrous amount of money of about one cent a pamphlet, don't you? So well done to those of you who have done it. But Bruce told us how he had a, had a, a, a sort of an entrepreneurial way of making more money and working less. He found an empty section on the side of the road that he was delivering pamphlets to, and he found a great bush to hide all the pamphlets under, and he'd go home. And uh, he sort of figured that the boss would never check in because the boss wasn't living on the street with the pamphlets delivered. But about a month later, the westerly came. <laughs> and when the westerly came, it picked up all of these pamphlets, blew them down the street, and it wasn't very long before the boss was knocking on the door saying, Something to the effect of, uh, Bruce, we are terminating your employment. I think it was probably more robust language than that. But when I spoke to Bruce some years later, down in Dunedin where he was living, I caught up with him. And during that time, Michaela and us, our life had gone through a, a transformation of becoming followers of Jesus. And I explained to him how it is that this is what had happened to our lives. And his response to me, and I'll never forget it, and that's why I share it with you. This is 25 years ago. He said, Craig, I could never go to church because I'm just not good enough. Now, I don't think it was the pamphlets that caused him to feel that he's not good enough. But somewhere deep in his history, there's something that he feels ashamed of. And so therefore, he feels that he can't make it into a church. And so this morning, we're looking at a, uh, another person who has this sense in which they too aren't good enough. It's a woman who, in Jesus' day, lived not too far away from the main religious activity of the Jewish uh, religion, but this woman uh, started life, we imagine, as like anybody else with, with high aspirations, high goals, just embracing life. And uh, so she gets married, and the whole village and all her family would have been there to celebrate this, as because when you get married, it's a, it's a week-long celebration in the Middle East. It's a fantastic event. 
But somewhere, somehow, for some reason, her, her husband, obeying the law of Moses, handed her a writ of divorce. That was it. Her husband had all power and authority. Wrote her a divorce. I divorce you. So maybe some time later, she remarries and the community celebrate. Because this is the second time round. But the same thing happens. Sometime later, again, her husband writes her a writ of divorce. Sometime later, the story repeats itself, and she gets married for a third time. And the community probably just looked around the corner at the celebrations and thought, oh, three times? And look at that husband of hers. He's, he's not really top shelf. You know, She's getting a bit desperate now. And she too is handed a writ of divorce. And then there's a fourth time, and the Bible tells us there's a fifth time. And we're told this is a true story. And finally, her fifth husband hands her a writ of divorce. Now she's desperate. Because without a husband, she has no visible means of support. A woman on her own, maybe there's some children thrown in there as well. What does she do? Well, that loser down the end of the road picks her up and says, you can live with me. So here she is, five husbands, and living with somebody who's not a husband. She would have gone from the center of that community where people celebrated her life with her, with all the bells and whistles that come with a first wedding, and then two, three, four, five, and now she'd gone to the outside of that community. Disappointed, disillusioned, isolated, lonely, rejected, just feeling that her life was probably a meaningless event now and she was an embarrassment to her community and her family. And then the story begins in John chapter 4. And the opening part of the story says so much more than we would think it does. It says here that he now he had to go through Samaria. He being Jesus. And uh, we'll bring up a little map and I'll give you an idea of why we're talking about this in this way. Jesus was down here in the Judean area. As you can see, Samaria is here in the middle. And uh, these were the, the strange cousins of the Jews. You know, connected by blood some further way back. And I'll explain a little bit more about what that is. But for anybody who was a righteous Jew, God-fearing Jew, didn't want to be tainted or tarnished by these mixed-blood Samaritans, if they wanted to travel from the Judean area of Jerusalem, they would shoot up the Jordan River Valley here, and they would avoid Samaria, and they would come into Galilee. And when they got there, they would say, I've just come from Judea. I took the long way home. You thought, you always wondered where Supertramp got that. Name that song, didn't you? They took the long way home. Because we don't mix up with those Samaritans. But the opening verse that we find from Jesus is he, now he had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to go through Samaria, but he had to go through Samaria. There was something there that God had planned for him, and we're going to find out what that is. So he goes through Samaria, and he stops in a place called Sikar, which you can see on the map there, just uh, in the middle there, Sikar, near Mount Gerizim, which was the holy mountain of the Samaritan people. Just as Jerusalem, Mount Zion, was the holy mountain of the people of Israel, so Gerizim was the holy mountain for 
the Samaritans. And so the story rolls out like this. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakaar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And here are just so many clues and so many signals as to what's going on here. Obviously, Jesus has been traveling all day. It's the middle of the day. He's hot, tired. And uh, we'll see in a moment that the disciples have gone off into town to get some food. And Jesus is left there alone in a Samaritan town or just on the outskirts of the town by Jacob's well. And this well uh, isn't mentioned much in Scripture, but it becomes very important to this story. But it was about noon. What do you expect to be happening around a well at noon? Well, let me tell you, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because why people don't get their water at noon? Because it's too hot. They're carrying you know, pounds or kilos or gallons or liters of weight. Is that particularly the women were tasked with this. And so what would happen is the women would meet in the early hours of the morning, and they wouldn't go straight from their home to the well. They would go to the village square or wherever the meeting place was, They'd round everybody up and then they'd go together because this was the the first and best probably social event of the day. How are you doing? What are you doing? What did you do yesterday? How did you go yesterday? You were going to do this. And that normal conversation that people have when they go about their business and it's a hard chore and so they talk and make life and fun out of something that's a drag. And then again in the evening, they might do the same thing. Gather again in the cool of the evening, go and get the water. Very simple. But what happens? Jesus turns up there at about noon, and this is what develops. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And that is the understatement of this whole story that Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So it might saying, you know, um, this rugby club doesn't associate with that rugby club, you know, or, you know, people in that real estate agent don't associate with that real estate agent. They just sort of say, oh, yeah, they're probably friendly. These people quite literally hated each other's religious guts. That's, don't need to explain that much more, do I? But I will. They hated each other's religion. And Jesus is now breaking through boundaries of cultural prejudice and and breaking through boundaries of religion here. See, what had happened is 700 years before this period of time, the Assyrians had come, which is uh, modern-day Iraq, had come through and captured the large portion of the population of the the God-fearing Jewish community except they didn't go and clean out the two tribes, the northern tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Two tribes there were left when the rest were carted off as slaves into Assyria. And so what happens is when this group of Jews go to Assyria, they they remember their own story from when they were people rescued out of Egypt some hundreds of years before that, and they stick together. That's what you'll see about a Jewish community anywhere around the world, even today. They will stick together and they will defend their culture and their customs and their faith. And so even under the pressure of being slaves in a foreign land, you know the psalm they sing, don't you? By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, hey, we wept when we remember Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. 
and they are singing these songs uh, in Babylon, and they, they remind themselves of what they had was so good, and they didn't realize they had it so good until they're taken away. But when you're away, everything that you had seems so much better. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah? You remember your childhood? Oh, the endless summer days. Never rained. The beach was always hot, burn your feet when you'd run. The waves were always perfect. These are your childhood memories. Hey, well, when you're a, a group taken away into slavery, you remember Zion with weeping. And so that held them together. But for Ephraim and Manasseh, who were remaining here, what happened to them is they, they lost their religion. They lost their culture. And, and without that sense of shared responsibility for what God had given them, they started to dissipate, and they intermarried. They started to worship foreign gods. And then they came to a conclusion that it was only the first five books of the Bible that were really important to them. It's called the Pentateuch, the first five books in Scripture. And because uh, following that, you've got essentially David's story and how that all came about. Well, they weren't into David because you know, David was from Jerusalem. And, you know, Jerusalem's down the road. And so they started to redefine their faith. And they said, we have a mountain too. It's called Mount Gerizim, and it's a holy place. It's where Moses declared blessing over the nation of Israel. And so they claimed that as their holy place. And Israel said, no, no, the holy place is where Zion is, and that's in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And so they had this, this fight going on, this cultural war, this religious war. And it was very intense. The third thing that was going on here was breaking through the boundaries of gender. Women had very little place in Middle Eastern societies in the day. In fact, they were known as chattels. That's why you could write out a divorce for five times for, your, for, for a woman who was uh, your wife. And they were tr treated as chattel, as valuable as cattle. Sorry to say that was just the way it was. And yet we find here Jesus, who had to go through Samaria, has now engaged himself in a conversation with a woman whom he knew would be there. It's kind of handy when you're God, isn't it? You know, I wish I had a few of those little uh, revelations at times, you know. I mean, we do promise in Scripture that we'll have word of knowledge at the right time in the right place at times. I wish I just had a few more. But here's Jesus now, and he's engaging with a woman on his own. It's a very, very dangerous territory for him to be in could be accused of anything if somebody came along and stumbled upon him talking to this woman. But he does, because he has a mission in mind. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, again, the understatement of the year. If uh, Jews would never, ever even eat off the same plate or use the same utensils or drink from the same cup, as a Samaritan had used. They would throw them in the tip or burn them, whatever's needed, clay, crush it. They didn't want to be associated with anything to do with Samaritans because they saw them as unclean and unholy. So when this woman says to Jesus, hey, how come you're, um, you're asking me for a drink? Um, she knows the rules. She knows the customs. She knows the hatred that exists between these two uh, semi-related religious groups. And so what happens here? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, there's all sorts of code words going on here, but what's happening is Jesus is shifting this conversation ever so gently 
from a, a conversation about physical needs of water to spiritual needs. Now, the reference to living water was well known in the day. There were two types of water in the Middle East, and there still are today probably. There's dead water and living water, you know, not much in between. Dead water is when water pours off maybe the hills into a cistern and fills up, and then the water is drawn from that. It's a bit muck, mucky, murky. Great for animals, they don't have a problem with it. And uh, if you're desperate, you drink it yourself. Living water was water that fell out of the sky. You know what that's like, don't you? We all know what that's like. You, ever, you, know, you taste that fresh water straight off the roof or straight into a clean bucket, and you go, wow, hey, this is the stuff without the fluoride and the chlorine and everything else. This is just the way it's meant to be. And then there's another living water, a living water that runs underground, underground rivers that are tapped into by wells. They might, get, might see a little fissure in the, in the ground, and they say, there's a little leak of water here. We've got to drill down here. And so this well, Jacob's well, 138 feet, around about 40 meters down, and Jacob's family dug this well to feed water their, their animals and themselves. But the beauty of this water is that it was an underwater river. And so the water, when it was brought up, was pure and cool and clean and life-giving. And so here's this conversation, Jesus talking about this, um, this drink, and he's calling it living water. And she's going, yeah, yeah, we can get this living water. Um, I can get it. You can't because you've got nothing to draw the water with. And this is where the Samaritan woman starts to engage with Jesus, thinking that she's got him a little bit where she wants him. He's the guy with the need. He hasn't got anything to draw the water. She came there to get water. And, uh, and, and yet the, in the conversation, it's starting to turn and she's starting to feel a little bit threatened because she can sense that this conversation isn't really about water. It's going somewhere else and she's not really sure where it's going. And so she's threatened and you'll find here she defaults to type. Now, when I say default to type, we learn a lot about this woman in these next few scriptures. Now, I don't know about you, but when you're frightened by something, you immediately default to type. You know you know how it is? The overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Something happens, you say, oh, golly gosh. Oh, whoopsie-daisy. Do you like that? You see the big spider and you go, ah, run, or you go, like that. Okay? Fight or flight. Let's have a look at how this woman responds to Jesus changing this conversation. It says here, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? So you can see her, she's just having them on here. I've got the bucket, you haven't. You're talking about living water. I know where it is. It's 138 feet down. And, uh, and you're telling me that um, you can get this living water. And by the way, this living water is sacred living water. The well was dug by our forefathers. And not only his forefathers drank from it, but their animals too. <laughs> by saying the animals drank from it, it's sort of like saying, hey, even the cows are sacred compared to you drinking our water. You know? And so she's reverting to type. And that type is someone who's a little bit lippy, eh? a little bit sassy. Okay, she's just sort of laying it on here, you know. 
You haven't got a bucket. I have. Do you like that? You get the one for free. I didn't do that in the first service. <laughs> but then you say, hey, how come she's been divorced five times? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and, and uh, according to uh, the Talmud, the laws that were written around the law to help everybody understand the law, they had a whole lot more laws, which the Jews lived by, and the Samaritans largely too. If the neighbor could hear your wife yelling at you, that was reason for a divorce. She's a bit lippy, isn't she? Okay? And you're saying, praise God for brick houses and insulation and tile roofs. So what happens here? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the conversation's turned, isn't it? Now we're not looking down the hole there saying, how do we get this water out? The woman's looking at Jesus saying, what the heck are you talking about? We were talking about water rushing underneath this well here. Jacob and his animals. And now you're talking about eternal life? It's remarkable, this conversation, isn't it? Just goes from a very, very natural thing to a spiritual conversation. Everything has turned. But this lady hasn't changed in a hurry. She's still doing the sort of, you know, I got what you need. And she, she then baits him back again. And uh, this living water that she's talking about, she says, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Let's just stop there for a sec. You see how it's cheeky, isn't she? Eh? Give me some of this water and I don't have to come here in the middle of the hot day without my friends, not, uh, not have to be shamed by walking into the middle of my village with water in the middle of the day because no one wants to accompany me. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this, some of this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I don't have one, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Whoa. Stop that sassy stuff. Stop that lippy stuff. This guy, this guy in front of her has just drilled right down and read her mail, eh? Right down. And the conversation now is, is completely different. It's a conversation where she is undone, but something dramatic is happening here. Because remember, Jesus had to go to Samaria. He had to go to Samaria. He had to go to Samaria to have this conversation. Because maybe under the lordship of God as father, Jesus was being led here to a woman who was absolutely desperate, isolated, rejected, frowned upon by her society, totally, totally disappointed in her life. And here's Jesus taking her from the, the furthest, furthest point of the outside of the circle. And he's drawing her in. <laughs> and he's saying, hey, we can talk about spiritual things, you and I. We can talk about living water, you and I. We can talk about eternal life, you and I. And guess what? We can also talk about that horrible life that you've led. 
where you've been rejected by man after man after man after man after man. Man's going to reject you, but God won't. And that's what Jesus is there to say. The fascinating thing about Jesus' ministry, particularly as John's gospel describes it, is that Jesus goes around (laughs) revealing who he is to all the outsiders. All the insiders are just grumpy with him, you know? They just want to get rid of him and kill him. The insiders who should have known that this guy was the Christ, they, they want to kill him. The outsiders can see something in him. And so this conversation continues, and she goes, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, this is a really big statement from a Samaritan woman because this wasn't a dogmatic, we are right and you are wrong. This was a, 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 a sentence of inquiry, a question of inquiry. We, we think it's this place that's important. You think it's this place that's important. It was an open question. She'd already just called him a prophet, and now she's saying, he's, she's saying to him, can you explain why it is that you feel the way you do? She's really, really open. Why? Because Jesus has come from far away to meet her in a lonely place, to draw her from the outside to the inside. He's read her mail about how many husbands she's had. Now she's in a position to trust him. And that's so much about our Christian journey, isn't it? We take one step forward in faith and trust, and we find that God meets us, and we go, okay, one more. I don't think this Jesus guy is out to harm me, so what do you think about this who worships where and what's the right place to worship question? Which is the big question for a Samaritan, the big question when Samaritans and Jews were were arguing. And so Jesus starts to unpack it. He says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, A time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So he disqualifies the mountains. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Then she opens up and she says, The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. That's the reason why Jesus had to go to Samaria. That's why Jesus had to go out of his comfort zone into the hot sun to meet a woman in a, in, a, in a place where it was risky and bring her from the furthest part, the outside of her community, to a place where he could look her in the eye and say, the Christ has come. And in John's gospel, this is the first time that he's told anybody who he is. And he never tells the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who he is. Not as directly as this. But he wants to tell somebody who's on the outside that being on the outside is not where you have to stay. But the inside is where you belong because broken people who have messed up broken lives are welcome. Are welcome. 
And they get to drink like everybody else does from that, that living water that wells up, as Jesus said, to eternal life, to a relationship that doesn't end here at the well, but goes on into eternity. Jesus is giving the whole story to her. Jesus is giving the whole story to her. He's not holding anything back. He's not holding anything back for his own sake or for God's sake or for her sake. He says, this is it. I am he. This story of the Samaritan woman is one of the most powerful stories about being not okay and then being welcomed in to the point of being okay. And for us, <coughs> excuse me, some living water with chlorine. Um, for us, this story is a reminder of God's mission for us. He, he loves us so much. This is the story that he has for us. But it's also our story of how we relate to the world around us. It's so easy, isn't it, to bypass Samaria. It's so easy to ignore those who are different to us, think differently, act differently, respond differently, particularly those who see themselves on the outer, like my mate Bruce. Bruce still doesn't know the Lord. In some degree, his life is still like those pamphlets blowing down a street, making a mess. His life is like that. It's sort of shambolic and disappointing and messed up and sort of like rubbish. And the reason why it is that way is that he can't accept the fact that he's acceptable to God in the way that he is because it's okay not to be okay. Why don't we stand for prayer? <clears throat> Father, in our everyday life, our everyday busyness, we sprint past the well in Samaria. We barely even look over our shoulder and see the woman standing there in her isolation and loneliness. We're always in a hurry. Father, we pray that we have just those opportunities to put the brakes on and just reach out extend a hand of kindness somebody who might feel that they really are on the outside when it comes to runs on the board they don't have any and so God we we not only look to people like that but sometimes we're reminded that we are those people ourselves even in the midst of a crowd we just feel separated out and unnoticed and we look at the things in our lives and we say, man, there's one failure after another. I've just managed to get to the very outer circle of what is acceptable. And yet Jesus had to go to Samaria. So wherever your Samaria is today, we just want to say to you that Jesus knows where your Samaria is. And if you allow him, he'll pour into your life that living water that will well up to eternal life. That's God's greatest desire. 
is that as children might know, where home exists. Where that place of refuge, the place of the living water that never goes thirsty. Where that place is, is in the very presence of Jesus. So Lord, as we go forward, may we hold these thoughts in our heart. As we look at the series of it's okay not to be okay, may we be affirmed in the forgiveness that God gives us through the cross of Christ. And may we also be people who are mindful of the Samaritan women around the wells of the life that we lead. Let us see them. Let them, let them be bright in our eyes as we see the crowd that we, we mix with on a daily basis. How we can extend a hand of grace and a hand of kindness and be Jesus to that Samaritan. We ask this in Jesus' name.